0: Our Father, again, we're thankful to you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity to worship in the house of the Lord. And Father, we are reminded of the psalmist who said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I trust that that's true for each of us, that we have come here to not only receive something from you, but to give to those around us through fellowship, through concern and as we discover the needs of one another to pray for one another. We're thankful, Lord, for what you are doing in each of our lives. We thank you for the word that we will study this morning and pray that our, the uh, eyes of our hearts will be open to understand the truth from your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 23, 23rd chapter of Genesis. We will read the first nine verses. Now, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirith Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying, Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the, to the people of the land and the sons of Heth. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me, and approach Ephron the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field, for the for the full price. Let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. We noticed last week that specifically the age of Sarah is given, 127. We have a hard time of course relating to figures like that today even though Americans are living longer and longer. uh, None of us hopes to live or maybe even would want to live to be 127. But we have to understand that the process of shortening of human life uh, from what it had been before the flood was still taking place and longevity was slowly being reduced, as we noticed uh, at the time of the flood. Noah himself was 600, and he lived another 350 years for 950 years. Uh, His sons did not live as long as he and his grandsons, and by the time you get down to uh, Abraham's father, you're down to 200 years. And Abraham himself lives to be 175, and uh, his, his sons... Uh, well, his son Isaac will live slightly longer than Abraham, but then Jacob will live less and Joseph will live only to 110. And as you get beyond that, the lifespan falls below 100 and begins to drop into the range that we are more familiar with. And I think this is really the result of the continuing deterioration of the environment from what it had been in the pre-flood period to what it was... uh, afterwards and the impact on the human capacity for cell regeneration and uh, those things which would mean uh, provide for longer life. John? What kind of extra biblical support do we have for this long process? <clears throat> well, I don't know we have anything for any process. Uh, we have statements in some other Uh, non-biblical writings that indicate great longevity for kings and rulers, but most historians consider that to be simply uh, hyperbole uh, of the ancients, Um, that some of the ancient kings uh, early in the history of the Near East, that some of them reigned a thousand years and things like that. So there is that kind of reference, but other than the Bible, uh, I don't know anything that gives this kind of a you know, clear choo, 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 shortening over a period of hundreds of years after the flood. I don't, Dr. Walmark. Are you familiar with any? No. But that's interesting, and it would be interesting to. Uh, but part of the problem was that uh, writing, as we know writing, was not very well developed at the time we're talking about. Now, writing was first. Writing first seems to have begun to. Uh, uh, come into existence about 4000 BC, at least the earliest phases of it, when it was mostly pictographic. Uh, And as you come down through the history of the Sumerian civilization from 4000 to 3000, it seems to begin to go through a change and becomes more and more, uh, a little bit more familiar, not in terms of alphabet, but at least in form. By the time you get to 2000 BC, which is about the time of Abraham, (laughs) A cuneiform apparently was phonetic by that time, at least that's what some scholars believe. So there was uh, very little in the way of uh, literature to provide a record of this. And when you don't have God to inspire your writing, you end up with nothing but human legend, which becomes extremely difficult to believe because it seems so erratic and and so extreme. That's one of the things that's wonderful about the scripture is it's it's rational in the sense that thing, absurd things are not given here when you consider who God is. And uh, again, need to point out the fact that archaeologists have yet to disprove anything scripture says. They have not been able to do that. In fact, most all archaeological discoveries where it can be shown how it impinges on the scripture are either neutral or supportive of Scripture. None has yet been shown to deny the true meaning of Scripture. The very last thing we talked about on last Sunday was the fact that, noting the change of location here, we, we note that in verse 2 it says that Sarah died in Kiriath Arbor, that is, Hebron. Sarah died in Hebron but you remember when the Mount Moriah event took place and Abraham took his son Isaac up on the mountain uh, for the purposes of making the sacrifice, that when he came back down, the scripture tells us, back in the uh, 19th verse of the previous chapter, so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. So they were living at Beersheba at the time of the Mount Moriah incident. And now, the beginning of the next chapter, we have them living in Hebron. So what we discover by inference here is that in the 25 years or so that, uh, that you span between the 19th verse of the 22nd chapter and the first verse of the 23rd chapter, they obviously made a move. They obviously moved from Beersheba to Hebron, somewhere in that time. But Scripture does not tell us when, nor does it tell us why. Now, Hebron is first mentioned in Scripture back in the 13th chapter, and we noted that as we went through that chapter. But this is the first time in Scripture that it is called Kirith Arba. Before, it was simply referred to as Hebron. Now, it is called Kirith Arba also. Now, the name Hebron meant seat or center of confederation. It probably was the name attached to the place by Abraham. And it was called that because it was because of the reference to his alliance with Mamre, Eshcol, and Honor at that particular time. The Amorites who lived in the area and uh, Abraham formed a confederation. And so Abraham gave the name of that spot Hebron, center or seat of confederation. Let me just read that verse again in the 14th chapter, verse 13, where it says, uh, Then a fugitive came and told Abraham the Hebrew, Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, brother of Honor, and they were allies with Abram. So there was this specific alliance between these three Amorite brothers and Abraham. Now, The city is called Kirith Arba in this particular passage. This name was probably a Canaanite name for the location. Kiriath means city. And Arba is a man's name. The man who was probably the head of the clan of the Anakim. So this is the city of Arba. That's what Kirith Arba means, the city of Arba. And Scripture makes it very clear what this refers to. If you go back to Joshua, chapter 14, it nails it down specifically in terms of the meaning of the city's name. In Joshua, chapter 14, verse 15, we read this. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, for Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. Verse 13 of the next chapter, which is chapter 15. Now he gave Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. So we're, we're told that... Uh, in, in, in this particular verse, that uh, Anak, Arba was the father of Anak. And in the um, previous chapter, we're told that Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And the Anakim are often uh, considered to be synonymous with the Rephaim, uh, the giant people, large people, such as Goliath was later on. Now, what about this woman, Sarah? Even though the passages of Scripture we have studied have tended to focus on Abraham, we find Sarah was a part of all that was going on throughout the the 90 or so years of their marriage. Possibly 100 years or more, even, that they were married. The greatness of this woman can be seen, I think, in at least three major points that we can uh, highlight here. First of all, she is the only woman in Scripture whose whose age is given at the time of her death. Now, think of that. How many men is is, is the age given at the time of death? Well, dozens and scores in Scripture. But Sarah is the only woman for whom the age is given at the time of her death. I think this really highlights the significance and the importance of this woman as Abraham's wife. Secondly, I think we need to realize that as Abraham was a great example of faith, so was Sarah. Sarah was partner with Abraham in this great faith, and she believed in the promises of God as did he and she too was looking for the kingdom of God. If we turn again to the 11th chapter of Hebrews where we have turned several times as we've gone through these passages in Genesis <laughs> like to emphasize one thing as we read through here from Genesis 11 I mean Hebrews 11 11 through 16. Notice it says by faith Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead, and that, at that as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, referring to either uh, Ur of the Chaldees or Haran in Syria, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now you'll notice that this is an encompassing passage. The last person referred to directly by name, before you go into this, these verses from 13 through 16, is Sarah. She is the last one referred to. By faith, Sarah. And then it goes on into these verses. So these verses apply to Sarah as well as to Abraham and, of course, to other great men and women of the faith in the Old Testament. But we need to understand that Sarah, too, was desiring a better country, that she, too, was looking for that city whose builder and maker was God. And as a result we have some sense of the greatness of this this woman. And thirdly, the New Testament makes it clear that she was a great example of a woman of faith, a woman to be emulated, a woman for other women to follow in terms of her attitude And uh, Peter is the one who highlights this in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verses 5 and 6. Uh, First of all, Peter is talking about how women should be adorned primarily on the inside, not so much on the outside, not that outward adorning is bad, but if that's only adorning that goes on, it's useless. But there needs to be the adorning of the inner person, the, the soul, the character, Uh, of the of the woman and it talks about how a woman can lead an unbelieving husband to the Lord if she happens to be married to one not so much by uh, trying to talk him into it but by just living that life that is an example for it says in verse 5 in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands thus Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord And you have become her children if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Uh, It needs to be pointed out that Peter is not here teaching male chauvinism. He is not here trying to say that women are to, uh, you know, be second-class citizens. He is simply, and he is not in any way implying inferiority or lesser standing. He is simply saying that God has ordained a certain order. And this order has been established by God for his sovereign purposes. And Sarah saw what God wanted and Sarah functioned within what God had ordained and as a result she was an example. And that is what he is highlighting here and that's what he is holding up here. And of course, you know, it's easy to kick against that. Uh, Scripture is full of admonitions as to what we are to be as men or women. And it's easy to kick against those because we say, well, that's just not my nature. Well, true, it's not our nature. Human nature is vile and evil. But when we submit to God and walk in his ways, we don't find it so hard to understand why God has ordained things to be a certain way. And we don't go around always grumbling about why did God do it this way? It just doesn't seem right. It's unjust or unfair or something else. And... um, But when we really understand Scripture and when the Spirit of God is working in our hearts, we're able to fit into the scheme and see how God was so wise in what he did. Now, when God uh, advocated uh, from the very beginning that uh, one man be married to one woman and uh, later on said that the kings of Israel were not to multiply wives, and when they did, they really understood, I think in the long run, uh, if they thought about it very much, why God so ordained because it became a gigantic problem and a huge pain in their lives to to violate God's perspective or God's actually his commands on on these matters. And uh, so anyway, Peter is here holding up Sarah as a godly woman who knew what God wanted her to be. She fulfilled what God wanted her to be without kicking against it all the time and thinking that somehow it was demeaning to, to be uh, what God had ordained her to be relative to Abraham. I, I think as you study particularly that passage in Hebrews, you can see how uh, she stood shoulder to shoulder with Abraham in carrying out God's plan and being the one, one of those who looked for God's heavenly kingdom. And as a result, God was glorified in her life. She, I believe has left a great legacy of faith, of obedience, and of fearlessness. At the same time as we have already studied about her life, we recognize that she wasn't perfect, just as Abraham wasn't perfect. And this at least gives us a measure of hope, (laughs) because we know most of us would say, Oh, I surely wouldn't want to be held up for all my uh, children and children's children and so forth as the example of faith, obedience, and fearlessness, you know. Because sometimes my faith is weak, and sometimes my obedience is not there, and sometimes my fearlessness becomes rubber knees, you know. Uh, And so it was with them. But God saw the heart, and God saw beyond the momentary wavering and considered it to be faith. I think Abraham and Sarah discussed what to do with their remains. Uh, should one of them die. Uh, Certainly they knew that they would die one day. Uh, And I think this was not just suddenly Abraham's brilliant thought. I think they had discussed it together, what they should do if, when, when one of them died, what the other should do. Should they be buried in Canaan, or should they have their bones transported back to Haran, or maybe even sent all the way back to Ur? You know, that could have been a possibility. But they chose to be buried in Canaan because Canaan was the land of promise. Canaan was the land that God said, this is the land I am giving to you and to your seed. And so they chose to remain there, even in death, and to be buried in in the land of Canaan. So, what Abraham now has to do is negotiate for some place to bury his wife because he owned no land. He was a nomad. He traveled about the countryside with his family and with his, with his herds of animals. And so now he has to find a place to bury his beloved wife. And so he goes to the people of the land in which he is living at that particular time and plans to negotiate for a piece of property. Now, 25 years before, when he lived in Hebron the first time, his neighbors were the Amorites, Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor. But now we're told, as he goes to negotiate, he doesn't go to negotiate with Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor. He goes to negotiate with the sons of Heth uh, and with this man, Ephron. So the question might be, whatever happened to the Amorites? What happened to Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor? Did they all die? Probably not. I think what happened to them was the same thing that happened to Abraham. After all, Abraham had migrated away. He had moved down into the Negev and he'd lived at uh, Beersheba and he'd lived over in the land of the Philistines. Why not they? They probably also moved and uh, had traveled off now to another particular part of the Near East. I mean, these people were nomads. Most of them were nomads who lived up in the hill country. Uh, And so they traveled whenever it was necessary for their animals to move to a different place. And so that is probably what happened to them. The question now becomes though, who are these sons of Heth? What is their origin? What is their background? Well, the scripture doesn't say too much, but it does say a little. Let me just read a verse from the 10th chapter of Genesis, verse 15. And Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. So one of the things we discover is that probably this is the same Heth, that is being referred to in in the um, 23rd chapter. And so the children of Heth were at least the sons of Canaan. So you could call them Canaanites in the broad sense of the term, in the sense of being descended from Canaan, not necessarily in the specific sense of being uh, long-term residents of the land of Canaan. The sons of Heth that it seems, were related to the Hittites. Uh, in, in this 23rd chapter that we're studying, we haven't read verse 10 yet, but verse 10 tells us that Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham. We're told that Ephron himself was a Hittite. And he was sitting amongst the sons of Heth. Now, does this mean that Hittites were living amongst the Canaanites? Or does it mean that he actually was one of the sons of Heth, and thus the Heth, the sons of Heth, are equivalent to the Hittites? Are they the same? Well, you can't tell for sure from this particular passage. But most of those who have studied this feel very definitely that the sons of Heth were the Hittites. And they uh, feel that uh, the uh, little outlier here at Hebron was simply uh, a kind of a colony or an advanced camp of Hittites living in southern Canaan who had migrated from the Hittite center in Anatolia. Now, within a century or maybe two of the time that we're talking about here in Abraham's life, depending exactly on when Abraham lived, when this event would have taken place. But let's say that this event is taking place somewhere around 1900 BC. That being the case, within a century, the Hittites will will have established a major empire up in Anatolia, on the Anatolian Plateau. And the Hittite power would continue to grow and for 600 years, the Hittites would be a great power in the Anatolian Plateau and they would be major rivals of Egypt. And, and the region of that rivalry would be this land in between Egypt and what we today call Turkey. And so the whole coast of the Levant there would be the uh, intermediary ground uh, where these two would see their rivalry uh, enacted. And so it's, it's very, very possible that what we're looking at here is a group of Hittites related to the Hittite core up in the Anatolian plateau of central Turkey. Now, when Abraham lived in Hebron before, it was clear that he considered himself one amongst equals, along with Mamre, Eshkol, and Honor in this alliance. But in this passage, he seems to really emphasize his alien status. Notice that he calls himself here uh, in verse 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. I'm an alien. This, this is not my home. I'm just kind of passing through. The sons of Heth were not his old friends. They were people he'd never encountered before, apparently. His old friends were gone. So he couldn't negotiate with, with them in the same way. So the nomadic nature of Abraham's lifestyle is being emphasized here. And we've always got to keep that in in our minds. Abraham was a nomad. And that concept spiritually carries over to us. Because Hebrews emphasizes not so much Abraham's physical nomadism as his spiritual nomadism. And that applies to you and to me. We are spiritual nomads. This is not our home. We're just a passing through, as the song says. And we don't want to put deep roots down here on planet Earth. We don't want to drive our tent stakes in really deep and become a part of world culture here in the sense that we're, we're just committed to, uh, to life here on planet Earth at this time because we are aliens too. This world is alien to us. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed that. It's getting more and more alien as as each week passes. As the culture in which we live seems to become more hostile and more hostile to God, the God we serve. And our nomadic nature, our our, spiritual existence, seems to become more and more highlighted. And every once in a while, I'm sure we catch ourselves thinking, oh Lord please come. Oh Lord, I'm ready to go home now or you know, whatever else because we as Abraham and Sarah look for that heavenly city, that place which will be our country, that place where we will be able to drive our stakes down and put our roots down because we will be in that eternal home for which we have been born as we have been born again. The first time we're born, we're born to live on planet earth, and we are people of the earth. We are of the earth earthy, as Paul says. But as we're born again, we become heavenly, in the sense that heaven is now our true home. And that's the place to which we are headed. And it's important we always recognize that we are spiritual nomads. And it's not so important to build our little kingdom here. And to try to build up that grand estate and and to, you know, become people of honor and wealth. Now, Abraham was a man of honor and wealth, and they even emphasize it here in this passage. But that was God's blessing upon him because he was, first of all, faithful to God himself. Now, God doesn't always bless us in the same way. God doesn't bless everyone with wealth just because that person loves God and seeks to serve him. You know, the health and wealth gospel is wide of the mark. Because there are many more examples of those who didn't have wealth and who had poor health in Scripture than there are those who had health and wealth. Because if we, you know, as Scripture teaches, as, what, what was it that Jesus himself said? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because that rich man is tempted to and usually succumbs to his, the, the temptation to trust in his wealth, to build, tear, tear down the barns and build bigger ones, to hold all my wealth. And God says, thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. And then what is your wealth worth? You turn to Solomon and he says, what really good is it to labor all your life, to build up this fine estate, to leave it to a fool, to squander. And Solomon ought to know, you know, he had a lot of children and some of them were fools. In fact, the one who succeeded him was one of the biggest fools, Rehoboam. And, and so I think the truth we, we get out of this, one of the truths we get out of this, is this emphasis upon the fact that this is not our home. This is not Canaan. This is not the land of promise for us here as wonderful as Reading might be to many of us. This is not the promised land. Uh, and we need to keep our focus on heaven. Where did Abraham live? You know, He lived wherever he could find a piece of ground to migrate to, to put down his tent stakes, and, and to feed his flock. And the land on which he lived was not his land. It was either unclaimed land, or it was public land, or in some cases it was private land. You know, Abimelech, king of Gerar, said, Anywhere in my kingdom you want to settle down, please do it. So he had permission uh, to settle on certain pieces of land. Other pieces, like at Besheva. apparently <laughs> was largely unclaimed land. And, and so he set his stakes down. Now you and me, we think of, what is unclaimed land? I've never heard of unclaimed land <laughs> Uh, because we live in a world of five and a half billion people, and as a result, there's almost no land of any worth anywhere that somebody doesn't claim, and certainly most of it is under the sovereignty of some government or other. Uh, You know, even Antarctica, which, of course, most of us wouldn't really care to go try to graze our flocks there, but unless there were flocks of penguins, I suppose, you know, maybe there's some economic value for them, I don't know, but Uh, Even there, you've got conflicting claims as to, you know, is it going to be kept as an international, you know, kind of a UN thing? Or will it fall to the various countries that have claimed slices of it over the last hundred or more years? Uh, Abraham found land easier to settle on because, first of all, the population was sparse in those days. And second of all, uh, land that was claimed was not always protected, and people who claimed it lived far from it, and therefore they didn't even know who was living on it. But the only places where land was dear and precious uh, was near the coastal plains, on the coastal plains, and near the coastal plains, and then in the fertile valleys, and near the fertile valleys. Think about Egypt for a minute pretty hard to claim land in the Valley of Egypt, what they knew called the black land, the land where the moisture was. But you go up the walls of the uh, valley and out onto the plateau above and you could claim all kinds of land out there, what they called the red land, because it was just hostile desert. Take all you want. Didn't matter to them. Years and years ago, maybe you remember yourselves. Remember the days when, uh, well, I suppose they still do that, you could send in a box top from a cereal box and you got some prize or other. I remember when I was a kid, they were giving away one square inch of land. You send your box top and you get a deed to a square inch of land. I thought, well, maybe that's pretty good. But it was, it was someplace up in the frozen tundra of Canada. You know, and... and you know. <laughs> Uh, you, you think about that for a minute. If, you, if if somebody bought a square mile of land up there and divided it into square inches to give away, how would you get to your square inch without trespassing on other people's square inch? <laughs> and what would you do with it anyway? You know, it could be that your square inch was uh, the middle of some tree. And uh, several other people also were part owners of that same tree. So, you know, it's, it's just a silly little thing. But... Uh, Today, it's pretty hard to lay claim to any land or just squat someplace. But Abraham was able to do it without much difficulty. And they still do it in that part of the world, especially in Arabia. (laughs) They still just kind of travel around nomads. Uh, I mean, even in the land of Canaan today, you still find the Bedouins. And they shift here and they shift there, uh, moving their, their herds with them. Now, God had promised to Abraham the land of Canaan. But Abraham was not about to expropriate land for himself from people who didn't know Yahweh and didn't know the promise that Yahweh had made to him. He couldn't have gone simply to the city council at, uh, at Hebron and said, look, uh, God's given me all this land, so I want that piece over there, so don't give me any hard time about it, right? Right? he could have done that, but he probably wouldn't have gotten away with it, and God would not have been honored in that. God pays his bills. So, he respectfully requested a burial site for his wife, Sarah. Now, notice how the men of Heth, sons of Heth, respond to Abraham in verse 6. Chapter twenty-three of Genesis, verse six: Hear us, my lord. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse his grave for burying your dead. Now, certainly, part of this was just typical Middle Eastern effusiveness in, uh, you know, honoring Abraham. They called him a mighty prince. The Hebrew here is Elohim Nasi, which means literally Prince of God. You are a Prince of God. So somehow his testimony had rubbed off on them in the sense, it seems at least, that uh, they may have known something about Yahweh, or it could be, the word isn't Yahweh used here, it's Elohim, (coughs) which could mean simply, that they have noticed how wealthy and powerful he was, and therefore they just were saying, well, you know, the gods have blessed you. That's, that's possible too here. We don't really know. But they each offered him their own sepulcher. His own sepulcher to, in which he could uh, bury his dead. Now I think this is just an example of Near Eastern uh, courtesy. Oh, My Lord, please, please use my sepulchre. Bury your dead in my sepulchre. It would be an honor to me to have the wonderful princess Sarah buried in in my sepulchre. Did they really mean that? Or was this not simply, were they not simply carrying out the necessary formalities for the expected land transaction? They do a lot of interesting haggling over there in the Near East. And they say a lot of things that they don't mean first out. And uh, once you know the rules of the game, everybody plays the game and everybody knows what's going on. But if you come in as a stranger, you could be really hoodwinked. But uh, Abraham didn't want a borrowed tomb. Let's just take it literally here for a moment. He wasn't interested in a borrowed tomb. Besides that, we should understand Abraham's no dummy. He knows exactly what's going on here. Uh, After all, he's part and parcel of the world of that particular time. But Canaan was going to be his home. That is, the land that God had given to him and to his descendants. So he wanted a place to be a memorial. A memorial to, to his wife and certainly to him, and to others of the family that would be buried in that sepulcher in the cave there. A place where there was an actual physical location that the descendants could note, that is where our great patriarch and his wife are buried. It would provide some roots for his descendants. Now the encounter we read about here in this particular passage probably took place on, on a grassy slope just outside the gates, outside the gate into the wall of Kirith Arba. Abraham and his retinue went there at the appropriate time, possibly making arrangements ahead of time for the head honchos of that area to gather, but they normally did anyway, uh, usually every day the elders of the city would sit at or near the gate. Now, we can probably picture this, and it, you know, there's no way of telling for sure, but we can probably picture this as here's this grassy slope right next to the roadway that's leading into the city. And on this grassy slope are uh, these rugs all spread around in a circle, and the elders of the city are sitting in sort of like a council circle. And Abraham is now sitting in that circle amongst them. And he makes his opening request, which we read, and we saw the response of the sons of Heth. Please, bury your dead in our sepulchre. We would be honored to have Sarah in our sepulchre. With that all, all those introductory formalities out of the way, he begins to make the official request for which he came. He rises, we're told, and he bows before the council, expressing his respect to the city fathers as they're they're sitting there. And although Ephron himself is sitting in the circle, sitting amongst the sons of Heth, Abraham follows the typical Near Eastern custom of asking the others to intercede for him with the man who is the actual owner. So he doesn't go make a request directly to them, he's talking to the whole council, will you talk to, as if he weren't even there, Ephron, and uh, ask if he will sell to me this piece of land. Now, what is he asking for? He's asking for the cave of Bechpila. And he was prepared to pay full market price for it. Even though they had said, oh, no, please bury your dead." in my sepulchre. He wasn't going to accept one of those offers. The cave of Machpelah. The word Machpelah means double. So, he's wanting to purchase double cave. Apparently, there were either two entrances or two parallel caverns inside. Now, you might say, well, don't we know? Well, there's one problem with studying the cave of Machpelah. It sits underneath a very large structure today. And that is, that's traditionally the site of it anyway. Uh, there at Hebron. And you are not allowed to go into the cave. In fact, if I'm, if I'm right, and, and Dr. Walmart, you can correct me, it seems that they have only in the last uh, few years even allowed a camera to be lowered. Into the the sepulcher that is into the cave to kind of get a glimpse of what's going on or what's actually inside there Uh, You're not allowed to go down even if you're some kind of an expert and do exploring inside the cave there because it's a holy place Um, The the structure which sits on top of it is uh, Herodian built primarily in the days of Herod the great and uh, Is is uh, is sacred to Christian, Jew, and Muslim. I mean, after all, the, the Arabs, who is their father? Abraham. Just as he is to the dis- children of Israel. And so, this is an extremely sacred sight to them. Chapter 23, verse 10. Genesis 23, 10. Now Ephron was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the city, at the gate of his city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. And he spoke to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only please listen to me. I will give the price of the field, accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. (laughs) A slightly indirect way of bargaining, is it not? Fortunately, we don't usually operate that way in terms of uh, selling property uh, today. Pretty straightforward. You pay this much, and you get this property. You can negotiate, obviously, and argue about the price, but uh, you know, oh, you know, don't worry about it. Just, just take the land, you know. But, you Nobody know, it's offers it free. what's that? Nobody offers it free. Nobody <laughs> offers it free. Is that tradition in that area? yet? It seems that they still operate in this way, yes. In fact, uh, I'll be, I don't know if I'll get to it today, but I was going to give a quotation from one of the scholars who studied this, and and he says, yeah, in effect, they still do this over there amongst the Arab peoples. They still uh, deal with it this way. But see, if you're you're part of that culture, you understand what's going on. And it really is just as straightforward as selling property is in our society. It just doesn't seem that way to our mind, because... Everybody there knows what, what you're supposed to do at each phase, and everybody knows what's coming, and everybody knows what you mean. But to us, we say, well, tell me, why did he just take it? The guy was giving it to him. <laughs> now, it, it might seem to us here that Ephron has sort, uh, short-circuited the formalities here by responding directly to Abraham rather than waiting for somebody to intercede and all this. But that may not really be what happened because we don't know what took place between verse 9 and verse 10. It could be that verse 9 and verse 10 do not give to us a blow-by-blow, moment-by-moment report of all that went on there. It could be they're just summarizing the events and that it's possible that there was the, you know, the, the, the formal uh, intercession by the sons of Heth with Ephron and kind of a little dickering here and a little dickering there before Ephron finally speaks up. Well, whatever is the case uh, here, we discover verse 10 is very, very important because it emphasizes the legality of the proceedings. Here, because you'll notice it says, uh, Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city. This is very, very important for us to recognize because they didn't have the kinds of, of legal proceedings and legal papers and legal storage and all the kinds of things that we have today. And so they had to do it in a way that would uh, be legal in their particular time. So Abraham makes this, this formal request here in front of this city council, you could say, the elders there of the land, other people are passing back and forth and stopping and listening, and so they be, all become witnesses to what is transpiring here. Those who sat at the city gate thus became judge, jury, notary public, all wrapped up in one. And so what was negotiated here was officially and legally contractual. In other words, if Hep- Ephron agrees and Abraham agrees the money is paid the title is transferred and it is legal It doesn't have to go through a uh, What do you call these places now where you have to excuse me title company? company, You don't have to sit in escrow for a month or two or however many I Do it all all right there one day bang bang you know, but it's legal and and all these witnesses can verify that this has happened. Now, it was part of the custom of the day for Ephron to make the statement he did. Oh, please, I give you the land. You're such a mighty prince. I just give you the land. Sounds like a true offer, but it's simply a formality. It was not expected that Abraham would accept the offer. Ephron was not in his heart giving that land away. It was just a way of uh, you know, carrying out custom of that time. And Abraham knew that. Now, if Abraham had blown the whole thing by saying, okay, thanks, <laughs> I'll take it, his name would have been Mud with two Ds. I mean, he would have been in big trouble <laughs> and the people would have all considered him a cheapskate. That's how you got your wealth, huh? You went around ripping people off rather than honoring uh, the name of the Lord by having been a man who lived by faith, who lived by honor, who, who lived by the customs of the people, and God blessed him in all that he did. Now, I, it just, just reminds me, I cannot even <clears throat> comprehend how people, like for example, who operate the mafia, just just to use an extreme example, can possibly enjoy their lives. How could life be fun if you've gotten all your wealth and power by stealing and murdering and all the kinds of vile things that, I mean, how could you ever spend it with any kind of, of, of joy? Because you haven't earned it with the sweat of your brow or even the sweat of your frow, you know? You've, you've, you've swiped it. You've stolen it. You've extorted it. How could it be fun? It's, there's no sweet fruit there. And yet they do it because men have consciences that are seared And they live for the pleasure of the moment rather than for the hope of eternity. And they have no hope for eternity. Most of us can remember maybe that first thing we bought with the the quarters and dimes we saved as a child from our allowance or from mowing the lawn or what it was. We went down and we spent that money to get that thing and how, how wonderful that thing was to us because we had earned it. But if if you're one of those whose parent says, well, what do you want today, kid? You know, Buy this, buy that, buy something else. Each thing becomes a trite thing. And you get tired of it really quickly. It's like when you get Christmas presents and there's 20 Christmas presents for little Johnny. Instead of that one thing that was made by the hands of a loving father or mother and given to that child, how much more of that is treasured than the, the plethora of things. They're just poured out kind of a cornucopia of gifts Abraham was a man who was not going to viol- to violate or defame the name of God by crossing the customs and the legalities of that time he was going to pay for what he was going to get because God pays his way and so it would be for Abraham as he would acquire this particular land to bury his wife. Well, I think we'll stop there and we'll talk a little bit about what he actually paid and what 400 shekels really meant in that particular day. Were the rest of the nomads buried in formal caves? Or they just buried or there? It, it just depends. It was very common to just bury them here or there. Yeah. Actually, it's kind of unusual for somebody who is a nomadic in lifestyle to acquire a specific piece of property because that would tend to, to terminate your nomadic existence. Or at least, of course, it could just give you a homeland to which to go back to, but uh, there's no way to, if you leave it, to protect it. Didn't have any real police forces in those days and other laws that we're accustomed to. I think Abraham did this for the very specific purpose of uh, creating a memorial for the, for the family.